ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next episode of Final But yes, Stampede, welcome back to another great episode of Vinyl Stallions. We are here with an incredible guest, Mr. Ben Carey, the bassist of Pigeons Playing Ping Pong. Ben, thank you for joining the show today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, and like this is a huge one for me, Ben, and uh, we briefly just talked before, but I didn't give you any sort of background of what you specifically and the Pigeons Playing Ping Pong has done for just my music expansion and knowledge. So I'll toss us back here. Again, I'm located in Cleveland, Ohio. And in early March of 2020, you are touring with Goose, doing the Goose Pigeon Show. And uh, I knew nothing about the jam band world. And a nickname I had was Spruce to Goose. And you throw pigeons playing ping pong in there. I'm like, you know what? It's time to just dive in a little bit. And my buddy got some tickets and I can say from there, from that show, I have been enthralled and my music knowledge has expanded so much. So I first off just want to say thank you very much for exposing me to just what I did not know beforehand. Oh, thanks for being part of it, man. Had you uh, heard of the jam scene previously? You just kind of were like, I'll get involved when I get involved. Yeah, you know, so I started like, I don't know, I was a very just uh, nonchalant music listener for a while um, and didn't really purposely, I guess, seek out specific ones. It was just whatever was thrown at me radio wise or just was in hot playlist or something. But uh, not really. uh, Didn't know anything about it, honestly, and didn't know what songs could do to number one. In my mind, in the jam band world, songs are just never completed. Like they are always ever growing, and to be able to see that in a live sense, and to be able to witness that was awesome. And then, uh, and then the light show, and then everything else that goes into it, out of this world, and just I had no idea it existed, and was coming through Cleveland, Ohio, all this often. Yeah, Ohio's always been uh, really good to us. Um, I don't remember the first time we played, but I know. We did the workout early on, maybe 2012, and we were just blown away by how nice people are, how open to new new music, and you know, just friendly. and And it's a really good community. It always has been over over the years. We've seen it develop. We've obviously had uh, Dome Fest a few years at Legend Valley, and played a bunch of other different festivals, including Workout There, uh, Dark Star Jubilee. Um, yeah, we just have a lot of good memories. It's it's really uh, puts the fam and family. I'm glad you like it. Cause yeah, we love that, you know, the, like not just you guys, but jam bands in general, they always seem to find a stop in, you know, whether it be Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Indiana, like we're going to have shows that are going to be accessible. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of great venues. Um, yeah. Just good, good energy. No, so yeah, awesome. I guess, yeah, um, take us back to like the start, Ben, like how did you, I guess, develop interest in the bass and then sort of find your way into the jam band scene and then, you know, specifically how'd you find your way into pigeons playing ping pong? Well, uh, going all the way back, um, my parents would listen to, uh, certain music such as like Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, Victor Wooten. Yeah. Crazy so band. I love that band. I grew up kind of listening to that kind of vibe and 
hearing the bass is more than just following the, the chord changes and just being a really active instrument. Um, but my first actual instrument was viola, which is the bass version of the violin. Um, play, I started when I was like four or five, but did not stay long. My teacher was probably better cut out as a, you know, a form of a whiplash style teacher, like the, the movie Whiplash with the drum teacher is very like, not my tempo, but she was teaching <laughs> five-year-olds and uh, we had just gotten our first computer uh, for Christmas and I had a program called Kid Picks. We were supposed to have a calendar. We had a calendar. We put stickers every time we practice and I didn't love practicing. So instead of putting the stickers on, instead of lying about practicing, I printed out a little Kid Picks like, you know, sticker on a piece of paper, but it only printed on a quarter of the page and it was in black and white. So very obvious that I was trying to manipulate the practice. And looking back on it, if I saw a kid doing that, I'd be like, wow, this is a very creative way to, to lie about practicing. And maybe if you took that energy and that creativity and, and worked on practicing, you get more out of this. Instead, she yelled at me in front of the whole class. Oh my. And I left that class crying to my my mom and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And she's like, well, of course you're not going to do it if you're not feeling it. So that was my first exposure to music. Um, and then when I was about eight, I started taking piano lessons with this amazing piano teacher, Gloria. And she taught me using the Suzuki method. Um, and it's a very simple left and right hand um, approach reading music. I read it enough to learn it. Um, and then I would just play it through. She encouraged feel. She encouraged using the ear. And that's sort of how I uh, connected with music the most. Played for a few years with her. And, um, you know, I loved it. But I never envisioned it as a career or anything like that. I, um, <clears throat> I remember trying out my mom's acoustic guitar she had from when she was in college, an old you know, 60s era Martin. And being frustrated it's like I, I feel like i'm intelligent i know how things work but this guitar i just couldn't figure out i wasn't using like the internet to learn chords or just you know play songs like that i wanted to figure it out as an instrument and like how it all works and so i got very frustrated with that i'm like well not doing guitar and somehow hadn't put together that you can be a musician or a rock star playing on piano so i'd always kind of felt like that was a calling but didn't understand that you can do it on piano. And uh, then when I was 16, my friend's birthday party, he got a new bass and uh, he had been playing his dad's old bass <clears throat> and he showed me a song on it and I picked it up. And I was like, this makes sense. This is right. I'm sure all of those years of listening to Victor Wooten uh, and the same friend got me into the Chili Peppers was the first like popular music. Yeah. I got um, previous to that, I had just been typing techno into Napster, uh, back when it was Napster even before Morpheus and Kazaa. And I would just download whatever I could. A lot of it was like that Euro techno rave style music. And I was like, this is fun. I like this. This feels good. And then uh, Owen introduced me to the Chili Peppers. We were at Borders, which also isn't around. I'm dating myself now at the mall. Nice. Preaching. No, you're hitting me with kid picks, man. Kid picks, kid picks. Kid, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. That was yeah, yeah. That no. was that was the that was the good good. <laughs> um, 
And then Prince of Persia on the computer, too. When you get to that skeleton, it's terrifying. Oh, yes. Oh, you're yeah. just flashing me back to just those big mammoths of computers that we had. Take, the col- those all colorful all Macs. <laughs> yep. Yes, exactly. The, the Macintosh. Uh, I remember coming down that morning at Christmas. We had no idea it was going to be a computer, and it just had the screensaver Merry Christmas bouncing around. Oh, let's go. That's awesome. I'm sure my parents stayed up all night setting that thing up. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, But yeah, so I picked up the bass and just like, I get this. This makes sense. And uh, a couple months later, I had my first bass and was taking lessons from his bass teacher, Dave DeMarco. Shout out. He's an incredible bass teacher and bass player from Maryland. Um, And that sort of got me onto that journey. Um, I was very nervous playing music. Even just in my house, I would keep the volume low enough so that the rest of my family couldn't hear. Because I'm like, I'm not very good. And I wasn't adept at, you know, being, getting better by being bad. Maybe that's where some of my resistance to practice was. Because it's just hard to, to not be good knowing that I, what I want to do. Um, and then we were, I think it was junior year, either junior or senior year of high school. I was in uh, gym class, and I was talking to this guy, John Adsit, and he's like, oh, I play guitar. We should jam sometime. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Hadn't ever played with another person. And uh, Greg Schaefer played drums, who I knew peripherally through my brother's friend. And John's like, let's go jam at his house. And he has a drum set. So we, we went over there, jammed, and by the second time we were together, we were a band called Ellipsis. We had written, I think, three songs, and I was stoked about creating music, like, creating something from nothing essentially felt really cool and um, mm-hmm. something I felt passionate about. We were going to be huge. I was recording on a uh, little cassette tape and I was showing people in my class, like check out this, what turned out to be really horribly lo-fi recording of a song <laughs> by high school kids that just jammed for the first time. But I remember that being very exciting and uh, kept that up with them for a while, played a few shows in backyards and here and there played the record theater in Baltimore and, uh, then we got down to college, and I was jamming some with my friend Owen, who I'm still in a side project now that we formed then called Schwa, and uh, jammed with him a little bit, jammed with my neighbor across the hall, who ended up recording our first album at the college radio station, Funky P. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And jammed with him for a little bit, and ended up playing a show with these two guys in an acoustic duo called Pigeons Playing Ping Pong at the... Cambridge Community Center, you know, small little, you know, multi-purpose room. And uh, I'd heard of them before. I knew Jeremy peripherally through, through high school, through some field parties. And uh, eventually, sophomore year, they needed a place to jam. And I had a house off campus while they were still on campus. And uh, they came over and jammed in the basement with the drummer, Dan, our old drummer, who was with us for like seven years. Uh, amazing guy, really connected with him. But just like I was nervous playing around my family, I was still not confident in my abilities and didn't feel like I was good enough. So I didn't even, he was looking for a place to jam and I didn't even go down to jam yet. I just like sat upstairs listening to them. And uh, I was like, do they even have a bassist down there? Jeremy still had his basement amp that with the low end, there is a bass kind of tone going through it, coming through the house. So... After a break, I kind of like poked my head down. I remember like looking down the steps and being like, hey, is there a bass player down there? And they're like, yeah, come down and jam. And uh, started playing with them there. And 
was still quiet enough in, in jamming that when we had to play our first show at Santa Fe Cafe, I wasn't sure if a couple notes I was playing were the actual right notes. So I remember freaking <laughs> out, like, so, someone's going to notice it's we're finally playing a real stage, and no one noticed or cared, and I figured out the notes eventually. But very cautious, very nervous. There's a video of us playing at the Wrecker, our first show in Baltimore in 08, and I'm standing there, like, you know, <laughs> rocking like Rain Man a little bit, just kind of like just playing the bass and Greg's all like out there just using, you know, microphone. And we ended up somehow wearing the same exact shirt, which I thought was hilarious. Um, that is hilarious. Yeah. And it, it just kind of grew from there. I was able to be lucky enough to be part of that experience with the other guys and, um, you know, kept going. We started, I think the next year we went out on a short little tour to a couple colleges and, uh, yeah, we just sort of, caught the bug we were all friends um after that point you know hanging out remember sitting on the roof of a college house with greg just talking about life and you know things like that and sharing experiences and going through troubles and and uh trials and tribulations and uh we sort of kept that going all of a sudden we were playing a couple hundred shows a year and just moving forward and uh that's how i sort of got that's how i got my start with pigeons that's awesome. So did Greg not play guitar early on? Was he like he just played, strictly vocals? He played acoustic guitar. He grew up doing musical theater, which I also was involved in a little bit. Uh, my brother went to school for musical theater. I sort of piggybacked with him doing a couple shows at a dinner theater um, when I was younger. And then I was actually lucky enough to be in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, an incredible musical. If anyone has yeah, it, check that out for sure. I was one of the, the kids in the chorus at the Lyric Opera House um, for a week when they did the local one. So Debbie Gibson and Patrick Cassidy, I didn't yeah. know before. Um, she was the narrator, but deep connections with that. That also kind of gave me a love of the stage and feeling that, that experience of connecting with both cast and audience and uh, over music and how magical that can be. But yeah, Greg did musical theater all throughout middle and high school, maybe into elementary school too. And he picked up the guitar about six months before college. And he, I think early on in, in freshman year, was walking through the dorms looking for someone to play guitar with and met this one guy. They played a little wagon wheel. And I was like, oh, that was fun. And he went a little further down the hall and Jeremy's on the same floor. And they started playing together. And that the rest is sort of history. They, they played for a while as an acoustic duo. So Greg would play more of the rhythm chords, um, and Jeremy would do the soloing, and Jeremy's sort of focused on the music, and Greg's connecting with the crowd. Um, so it's a nice dynamic they had going. Um, but there was one song we had called Dutch Master, where Greg would uh, pop out and, and just hold hold the mic and just go crazy with the crowd. And I think he also did Billie Jean that way, too. <laughs> but yeah, so he was sort of back and forth, and I think he was still playing acoustic at that time in 08. Um but yeah, he's he's developed significantly as a guitarist and as a frontman lead singer. Very cool. Do you think that the fact that you guys are all just like good friends outside of music, do you think that helps you like with I guess creating music and and also just like executing it? Because I mean, you guys tour more than 
most bands. Like you've got to be in like the upper 95 to 99th percentile of like shows per year. Yeah, we play a lot. Um, I would say that at a certain point um, with our experience, it's more like a family, like brothers. Um, We were all friends early on, but we're very different. Uh, Greg comes from one, you know, Long Island. I come from a little more of introverted extroversion. Uh, Jeremy's also kind of like focused on music. I have a different perspective on life, you know, Zen, Buddhist, uh, nowness idea. And just like, what are we here for? And what are we doing? And that brings a different perspective. And then Dan was just kind of like, you know, getting it done. He actually ended up leaving the band to pursue his dream of uh, selling real estate and real estate adjacent, uh, an app really that, that helps other people buy stuff. He was interested in, in creating a life of freedom and financial kind of openness. And he has done that successfully, although he's trying to get back into music now, cause that's why he created the freedom in his life. Um, but he didn't really love touring as well. Um, we connected, the three of us connected over going to festivals and being part of that magical musical experience and just kind of hitting the road. And, uh, we had the same love and the same passions and that's what connects us and connected us. Um, but also our differences really inform how we can create together and how we've learned to, to have differing opinions on certain things and leave space for the others, but, um, bring it all together in a cohesive kind of uh, dynamic experience. Bless you. Thank you. uh, It's, uh, yeah, it's been an experience growing up and now having families and I still live pretty close to Jeremy. Greg lives close to practice. So we still get together twice a week, almost every week when we're home, um, which is in addition to the touring, it's a lot, but that's how we grind out and we keep writing new music. Um, But yeah, it's sort of, uh, I like to say being in a band is sort of like a four person marriage of dudes who have a little bit less of an emotional understanding, especially early on. And, uh, just like in a marriage, if I guess the music is sort of like the sex, if the music is good, things can kind of work out. And, um, we sort of kept that, you know, being sexy with each other. But <laughs> I love that. That's an same time learning how to, to respect each other's spaces and, uh, and grow and evolve together as as humans so it's a, it's a deep connection that has shifted over the years and and evolved as we've evolved that's awesome that's very well spoken and um again as someone who sees it see, sees you all on stage i mean i i feel that you say like leaving space for one another to talk one another to do things like I don't know. I it transcends in the music definitely um, as a fan, uh, from a fan perspective. Um, but I also keep rolling with your analogy here of the family and keeping things tight because uh, one thing on Vinyl Stanley is that we really like to focus on is the people that help make your the music world go around, but don't get the spotlight and aren't necessarily on the stage. So Absolutely. I um, so who else is a part of your crew? And I guess who joined early? What makes Pigeons Playing Ping Pong's live performances so extraordinary? And who are the people behind the scenes that kind of make that go around? Well, early on, we had our, our friend Aaron Kovelman, who we stopped by Red Rocks one day in, in Colorado just to visit the site. And he found his way into 
A-Ron, double A-Ron, Ronnie, Ronnie Red Rocks. <laughs> so he was Ronnie Red Rocks for a while. And uh, he was pretty successful in lighting after he left us. Um, but he sort of was our early on a little bit of the tour manager vibe. He would uh, help with advancing and um, just kind of the cohesive bringing, bringing the band together. Um, but the lighting show is really a big part of what makes our experience kind of fully integrative. Um, Ronnie was with us for a couple of years and then Manny joined the band and he's been with us for you know, seven years, I think. And he's just as dialed in as we are sometimes more. So he'll, I've noticed he'll hit cues that one of us will miss or all of us will miss sometimes because uh, he's so dialed in, but it really makes the experience of the four of us envelop through the crowd because he's at the front of house next to the soundboard. So there's this kind of triangulation going on with the vibe that rips right through the crowd and those flashes when there's certain guitar notes played or, you know, when you reach up to, you know, smash a certain part, he's doing flashes with it, um, where he directs the lighting, brings the energy around as well. That's a huge part of what makes the live uh, experience special, especially with Pigeons. Um, he's a big yeah, fan so of I have, I have a question then in like layman's terms because again I like you see light shows with music as a fan and there's half of you that are like okay are those pre-planned like how does like how does it actually come to fruition with it all can you dive into a little bit more so is so he's actually syncing up with you guys is he like like basically another member of your practice where he has to know every single kind of like jam you may go into and stuff along yeah, those lines he's, the more you do it together the more we play together the more we start feeling each other's vibes and you know, when you're really jamming the right way, you're sort of outside yourself. And I'll notice moments where me and Gator will be hitting the same fills out of nowhere. Like you can't predict a doom ba doom ba doom doom ba doom and then and it just somehow happens that we're tied we're tied into the same groove and like inhabiting this space in our sort of upper echelon consciousness. And uh, Manny will be tapped into that too. You'll watch him during drum solos how he'll follow gator what he's doing and you know he has his own instrument he has a uh, his console has a small keyboard up top where he has different flashes he can do he has colors that he can switch the whole thing he has different chase scenes and he's kind of feeling it out just as we are and in jams he's free to do whatever he wants in specific songs like melting lights there will be things that we've developed over time, just sort of just like we develop our songs, it's like, okay, here's a flash. I remember um, early on, melting lights, melting lights, I'm feel, I'm losing my mind now. Bow, Gator hits the cymbals. And one time I thought to go throw my bass up. And then I told Manny a little while later, it's like, what if you did a strobe there? Or, you know, Greg points out a, um, so it looks like the whole thing's flashing. And that's one <laughs> small example where I, probably the only one I can think of where I actually was like, Hey, try this. Normally he just figures stuff out. Just like I'll figure stuff out on bass or Greg will figure stuff out. Um, he also listens to the lyrics and, uh, um, what fade fast is flashing the spotlight and Manny will flash the spotlight and Greg goes into that. Or you'll notice anytime Greg says fire, it gets red for a second warm. So he's tuned into what's going on. And, um, you know, just, just feeling the vibe and making, uh, making the experience. He's a fan as well of the music too, just like we all are. And so he's 
using his expertise as the best lighting guy in the scene to bring the fan into the experience. And, uh, you know, he'll always come up after the show and be like, you know, it was a good show. He's like, oh, man, it was a great show. And we're all feeling it too. And it's, it's really cool to connect with him because you can feel how he feels it just like we feel it. And uh, because he's in the crowd, it's a different perspective. You know, we don't hear the music as one full unit coming out of the, the PA system. So we're only getting what we can monitor. You know, we have yeah. originally there was speaker monitors in front of us. Now we have in-ear monitors and that's a much more limited place to be. And we have to be really listening to certain things for chord changes and jams. And he gets to experience it as a, a whole unit. And uh, because colors are not musical keys, he doesn't have to link up with us as keys. He can kind of do what he wants. So he has this whole other palette to work with, which brings in, a, again, a whole nother level of, of interaction. Um, but he's listening to our front of house sound engineer who's mixing us all at the same time. And he has a unique position too, especially in our band where there's two guitars, a bass and drums. So there's not keyboards. So there's a different soundscape. Greg's used, you know, delay pedals and sweeps to create more of a soundscape. I'll have my octave pedal to bring in some of that thick nature of it as well. And um, he puts it all together and, you know, EQs things, brings things in and out, just fits it together like a puzzle. Each room is different. Um, so you have yeah. where the subs are set up, where the speaker arrays are, how powerful the speaker arrays are. Uh, our new sound guy, he's uh, been with us for, I think, a year now. Um, he explained how if you haven't, odd number of subs it actually puts the bass out in a better manner than if you have an even number of subs so he goes into a room and he's like oh sometimes i've seen him actually pull a sub off and move things over so it sounds better but he's using the room as an instrument as well and again bringing people into that vibe and both he and our our long-running sound guy eric before dylan um you know they're what they their passion is taking our sound and translating it you know not necessarily changing it or or altering altering it but making it have the fidelity to be heard the way it should be heard um eric miller was with us for also i think eight seven or eight years around the same time gator joined so maybe seven um and he also did some of the tour managing early on which is another vital part of the experience um and uh he was very very talented, just very even keeled. He kept a, you know, he had a very settled vibe and very grounding presence. And uh, he would take our sound and, and translate it to that level. He was with us when you saw us for the first time in March, 2020. And um, yeah, he was a really big part of our development for all those years. And uh, he would drive the van a lot and, you know, just kind of hold things down. Um, he eventually uh, didn't want to be stuck to the touring schedule of going out just kind of whenever we go out. And he now does shows. I think he just did Grace Potter. So he'll just do small runs here and there. And then he gets to be home more, uh, work in the local area. But we still keep a very good relationship. He came to our Philly shows. He's from Philly, as well as our monitor engineer, who's the guy who runs our stage sound, which is another incredibly difficult job. They're running essentially four different mixes at once the sound guy just runs one mix for the front of house sort of two because you have the the nugs uh, soundboard recordings but 
essentially it's one mix. The sound guy has to run four with us all asking adjustments. He's not hearing the mix. He's just kind of guessing what it sounds like based on what it sounds like in his ears and his monitoring speaker. Um, so that's a very difficult job. And Dante DiLoretto, uh, he actually started with us as a merch guy and eventually he transitioned over when the house sound guy in a three night run in paradise wasn't cutting it monitor guy. And so we were like, Dante, you want to try it out? Like we need someone. And, uh, he stepped right in and was with us also for a while until he got a huge opportunity to, uh, work with one of his favorite drummers, um, with, uh, bright lights, I think. Um, oh yes. I think it's the drummer from, I think that's the band. I might be wrong. Um, but the drummer from, I think Queens of the Stone Age was playing with them. Um, Got you. Bright eyes. Bright eyes. I don't know. Uh, no. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they, yeah, no, they, they came through Cleveland last year. So yeah. Um, so Dante was able to work with them and, and by being with us and working so hard, he got to kind of forward his, his career and his dreams, which was beautiful. Um, he was also a local Philly guy working with Eric in smaller venues. And first time he started with us uh, on merch, he'd never been west of Harrisburg where we picked him up. Mm -hmm. And that time he went all the way out through the West Coast. Um, <laughs> we had a stop on the way there in Sandpoint, Idaho. And the venue, The Hive in Sandpoint, amazing venue. Um, surprisingly, Sandpoint had a great music scene you know you find those random places as you go around and uh he we were able to hang out in the green room until our the bandwagon we were in at the time was leaving that uh the next morning i think it probably left at four or five and uh the guys were hanging out at um the bar next door with some of the the house guys from from the venue and they were hanging out dante sort of tied one on and uh and went pretty hard and the next morning I wake up early and then I hear Eric open up his his bunk curtain and he says, wait, what? Wait, you're where? You, <laughs> you don't have your shoes and your wallet? He had somehow gone back in the venue that we had the door code for. I'm assuming he you know, was using the bathroom or something like that. Who knows? He laid down on the couch. He didn't have his shoes. He didn't have his wallet. <laughs> And woke up the next morning at 10 a.m. still drunk, and uh, we were halfway to Seattle. Oh, <laughs> what so a he story! Went, he yeah, his first time west of of Harrisburg. This Philly guy. It's like um, Charlie, and it's always sunny. That is like Never what gone. I. I don't want to interrupt you, but he, yeah, that literally was the first thing. Yeah, yeah. Never he, yep. out of Philly. Just yep. He he went for it, and uh, he went to a store and bought flip flops that were several sizes too small with his credit card number that Eric had sent him. And then he took a taxi to, I think Spokane and then uh, maybe an Uber to Seattle, three hours away, spent all the money he'd made on tour so far working with us, but made it to Seattle before doors. So he was able to still sell merch. Greg had to set it up for him because he had been doing merch up to that point. And he was pumping merch that next he day. Was, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Slinging it. Yeah, just like shoving it in people's faces. Buy this shirt. Buy this shirt. Sticking stickers on people's back and be like, all right, you owe me money. Um, <laughs> but he, since we started calling him Sandy, because uh, Sandpoint, Idaho. So he's still lovingly known as Sandy occasionally. 
and he got a tattoo of Idaho with Sandpoint marked on it. I think it's on his leg, maybe. Oh, so he great. forever has that, uh, you know, that connection and those are kind of, you know, some of the things that we connect with being on the road. Um, but those are a few of the people who um, make what we do possible. You know, also Eric and Dante load in and set up equipment and, uh, you know, they're working all day from the time they wake up till the time they go to sleep, packing up, packing the trailer, unloading the trailer, you know, setting up for sound check. Then they're there for sound check. Um, they're on stage before we are. And uh, then the tour manager, our original tour manager was Kevin. We met him in Michigan. Uh, he's an amazing dude. He was a promoter at the time and he hired us to play his, his show. And there weren't too many people, but every time we came back, we'd get more. And eventually he joined us on the road, uh, really connected with everyone. He and Eric and eventually Dante and Alex all played golf. So occasionally they'd bring their golf clubs for off days. Um, and he just really held down the fort, um, connecting with venues and, you know, with fans um, who, you know, would want to have us sign something or, or pass a message along or friends that were trying to come to shows. He would just kind of organize everything. And um, though he doesn't do anything with the sound or the lights, he makes the ship run smoothly. And uh, he actually left us around the same time as uh, a little bit before Eric, a, a couple months before Dante, and then a few months before Eric. He also got an offer he couldn't refuse working in the cannabis industry in Michigan, doing like a huge multi-million dollar facility, you know, management thing. And, you know, he also didn't love being gone as much as he did. He, his wife is at home and, you know, it was hard on them as well. So he's now able to stay home. He came out to a show in Detroit, hung out with us, brought some of his product uh, to try out. And um, we were able, fortunate enough to uh, find another tour manager in Brett, who I knew he actually was booking for my side project Schwa for a little while before the pandemic hit. He had a few shows lined up, pandemic hit, never got a show going with him. Uh, but we were looking around and we were able to try him out and he was sort of learning on the job. He has less, had less uh, production experience, whereas Kevin owns some lights. So he was more involved in setting up lights and Brett sort of got to learn on the job. Um, he's a very good dude. And, uh, you know, everyone who has switched in has a different vibe, but still fulfills the same role. Um, and uh, we're very happy to have him. And uh, he also makes things run smoothly. And then the final crucial element is the manager of our touring Etsy store, our merch guy, who has been a merch girl recently, uh, Ada, who's um, an amazing woman who is the best merch person that we've had. And uh, she's also working all day, just up in the front, setting things up, interacting with the fans. I think we were in Richmond, and it was colder out, and she's in the front area right by the door. So she she had to wear two pairs of socks and a coat, and she's just standing in the basically the cold half in, half out all day. But, you know, a significant part of the band's income is through merch, so we really su appreciate it when people support our merch. And... Uh, she's a big part of, of making that happen and helping us support our families and support the whole touring operation, which is you know, a lot of overhead going into it. Absolutely. And I, and let us repeat that one more time, ladies and gentlemen, merch directly supports the artist. 
yeah. especially vinyl yeah yeah let's go we're excited about our next album coming out in april so. well that is right where my head was going yeah because... yeah speaking of merch yeah there you go absolutely so yeah no you guys just recently announced this new album uh day and time coming out april 26 uh That's you right. released a couple tracks already that have been killer but uh, i we can't help but notice as fans that this is one of the first ones that doesn't follow the p format to start yeah. uh yeah diving a little bit more i mean there was uh, i guess i'll say one quote that I just love on your website that Jeremy said is talking about the album saying this album is the most cohesive group of songs we've ever had in the studio on our previous albums. There were usually older songs mixed in with newer material. However, all the tracks on day and time really represent our current writing style and where you guys are as a band today. Yeah. Um, it's uh, an opportunity to sort of move forward and, you know, as we've evolved, boy, the, some of the conversations, we'll finish an album and we're like, all right, what do we name it? And we just go through all the same P's we've had. Now it's funny, <laughs> once we had Day and Time, we got the album art. It wasn't until after we released the name, someone's like, looks like a portal. I'm like, ah, could have done portal. <laughs> but that's, if anyone's asking, that's the unofficial name, so that's the fans can call it the portal album. Let's um, go. But we were ready, you know, with our last album, Perspective, there were a few different uh, options that were a little more you know, kind of our old vibe and more fun and funky. But uh, we settled on perspective because the pandemic had given us a new perspective on things and, you know, sort of, sh sort of showed our, our growth. And, uh, you know, it's easy to fall into sort of being pigeonholed, I guess, um, into what works and what people like. But that's not what it's about. It's about doing what you love and following kind of your heart and trusting that people will pick up on that um, we just released a new song that's we wrote in the past few weeks. We started working on it, I believe, right before, right at the end of 2023. Released it at the Capitol Theater. Uh, it's called Feet on the Ground, and it is a much different writing style than even the songs on Respective or even the songs on Day and Time. It's kind of a little more, not mature, but like more relaxed and uh, patient in getting to the peak. Um, but we all put that together as a group. Uh, early on, we would write songs. I mean, you have the song Surreal, for example, that we literally jammed into live at the Shepherdstown Opera House for, I think, nine or ten fans were there. Half of them were decked out in, like, full festi regalia. Uh, we hung out with them after in the green room and became lifelong friends with that group. Um, we'd known them peripherally, but it was such a loose show that we sort of jammed into... You know, I was just playing the bass line. Jeremy goes, and Greg starts singing, I am lost inside my mind. Psychedelic, you know, flashing lights and psychedelic sounds. He was just singing what was in front of him. Um, but that's an example of a song that sort of came out at a live show. A lot of our other songs develop at a live show, just like with Manny, working through things. We figure out what works, what doesn't. We're in front of a crowd. We see what they react to. But as we've gone further, as we've gotten into the studio and tried to lay down our live sound in a way that that translates to a studio format, working with Steve from Right Way Studios, who's helped us hone in and you know tell us what works and what doesn't work, we sort of have a much more intuitive understanding of, of how our songs are put together before we need to play it live in front of everyone. 
and um, we that that shows in perspective and shows even more in day and time where we're starting like 200 shows a year so we figure out the instrument that is a live show and we're now figuring out the instrument that is a studio album and how to approach that how we need to come in mentally how we need to track things how we need to prep prepare ahead of time um and then now writing a song i will i used to kind of be more loose and play it different ways uh and then i'd get into the studio and like okay now i'm going to figure out which way i like the best nowadays i'll write it as if i'm in the studio so i can hone in because i feel more confident knowing what works and what doesn't what i like and what keeps it that organic feel while still locking into a, a, a part and um yeah that really shows in this album and uh there's another song on the album overtime that similar to surreal we were just jamming in practice and it came out almost fully formed with the lyrics the chord changes even the bass solo it all just kind of happened and um you know have that original chording to go back to and uh, it's cool how how similar it is because we just were already we were already there um and then there's a couple other songs that were put together as a skeleton form and then fleshed out as a group um but we're always writing new stuff we already have enough new material to put out another album so always going back in and you know it's a constant rolling process i mean day and time we recorded a while ago and uh we're finally getting it out there to the people and it's exciting to just keep moving forward that's incredible um when you guys tracked are you always like in a studio together like in the room collaborating or do you guys record in your own space and then send to you know whoever's going to be mixing or i guess yeah what's your process well for the studio albums we uh have been working with steve from rightway studios since uh after psychology so i think the first one was pleasure i believe yeah, it's like every Gator album, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the first one had Partial Gator and okay. Dan. I think that was the last one that kind of bled over. Um, but we start by tracking the drums in the main room. We're all in that same room. We record. The bass is in a separate room. Greg's guitar is in the piano room. Jeremy's guitar amp is in the hallway between the tracking room and the... Uh, the mixing room and uh so it's fully silent in the studio to the point where when we finish a song no one can click a pedal we have to just wait and we made that mistake if we had a great take and then someone clicks a pedal to turn it off because that's what we naturally are used to doing it's like oh wait we gotta let the, the cymbals ring out a little more so it doesn't click through um but we track the drums we usually do i mean gator can lock it in after two or three takes but we usually do at least five or six sometimes more if it's longer or more involved and um, at that point, Gator goes into the mixing room and listens to all the takes and subs in like, okay, this snare pattern here or like this hit on the cymbal works better here. And Steve compiles it again using the mixing software like an instrument, Pro Tools. You'll see him fluttering around on the keyboard and pulling this in here and there and merging the takes into one final take, get the drum takes locked in. And um, we usually do three, sometimes four songs a day that way, getting all the drums locked in because um, the drums need to be tuned and set up. And so we have the drum tracking 
as you know one week usually or a few days and then from that point i go in and i do the same thing where i listen to the five or six bass takes and working early with steve i would have tried out a few different things you know what i'm used to doing live like i try this way i try that way and we compile and sort of would write a bass line together um and he taught me a lot about what works with the other instruments especially in the the zoomed in world of the studio and i learned what i liked about my playing but what also has to work with with the vibe altogether. again i didn't find it as in, the important part of playing bass wasn't just following the chord changes the bass needs to have its own life and work with the other three instruments to create a full dynamic i think you should be able to listen to each instrument and have some sort of groove going now when they fit together it lifts all of them up and the sum is greater than the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts um but i find it important to be able to tune into each one and still feel that bubbly kind of groovy feeling um but i'll lock in my parts there's often jeremy would be in there working on stuff and uh or i'll have him come in for certain things like hey you listen to this and tell me what you think and uh, he'll have an idea, but I'll have my pedal board in the mixing room with Steve. My bass is still in the, the little bass closet area, and uh, we'll get to go through parts. And if it doesn't work together, I'll try a new part, and you know maybe take a a section, um, you know one section at a time, and just play it in and work with all those pieces and, and kind of create something. Then we have rhythm guitar. Jeremy and Greg put their parts in. Jeremy spends a while working on solos. He is such a perfectionist and, you know, live you just get to do a solo and it's off to the winds, but in a studio it's locked in forever, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so he he finds that very difficult and spending all the time just like focusing in and, you know, you kind of have to take breaks where you can. Um, so once all the instruments are laid down, only after everything's in tune and perfect, that's when the vocals can start. And Greg has a crazy process he's learned over the years. Can't eat cheese for a week or two before. Um, <laughs> obviously, when he was still partaking in any uh, inhalation practices that weren't just oxygen, he had to cease those <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a form of breathing exercise that's assisted. Uh, that's right. That uh, neither he nor I engage in. We're both into the Wim Hof style breathing and just breathing exercises as well. Um, I need to lock into that more, but it's a, it's a great way to connect. But uh, he goes in and he can do a few, he has to have a couple days between vocal takes because his voice will um, get tired out by that point. And again, it's very specific, but so once we do all that, we have the tracking done and then we go back and forth for can be a couple months listening to the songs, making edits, you know, saying, Oh, I remember in this part, this isn't exactly what I meant. Can you go back and listen to, or sometimes even come into the studio to, to do extra overdubs or, uh, um, listen to certain parts as a group. And, uh, we'll make adjustments in the mixing. It's like, okay, it sounds like the percussion we added could be a little louder here and maybe have a different pattern here. The guitar solo needs to be louder here. The bass needs to cut through here. And we'll send that, those notes to Steve. We eventually settled on a, um, 
using a Google Docs, we each have our own color. I have orange, Greg is green, obviously. Um, Gator's blue and Jeremy's red. And we'll have the songs and we'll make notes below. And then we'll comment on each other's notes if we agree, if we disagree. And we have this full thing and then we'll sum it up at the end for what we send to Steve. And he works with those notes and we'll have, it's called reference tracks. So we have ref one, ref two, we get up to ref seven, ref eight, going back and forth with these notes to get everything just right. And once you get all of that place, you send it off to get mastered. And you do the same thing where you listen to the masters and make sure it sounds sounds good. But it is a months-long process, at which point you have to finish the whole thing. Uh, what we do is about six months before it's released. Everything has to be done. And uh, so it's a long process. We put a lot of energy, a lot of attention, a lot of uh, thought into every little thing you hear. And, uh, you know... I believe it's reflected in what what you're getting. Is there ever a lot of, I guess, like deadline pressure just because like you guys tour so often? So I imagine your time to like actually get it all done is somewhat limited. Yeah, we've had to work on the road, you know, after shows, sitting sitting on the tour bus and going over certain parts. I'd go for a bike ride or a walk, listening to the recordings on the road or at home and then, uh, you know, making notes in my phone to translate later to the doc. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of, you have to really be passionate about it. And I've learned the studio stuff. It's really exciting. Just like I said early on, I'd be showing people this tape recorded aspect of, uh, this jam that we did in you know 11th grade and, uh, so excited about it. Now the excitement is more when I'm working on it. And by the time it goes out, I've sort of released it. And it's very rewarding to hear that you guys like perspective. But the uh, the real sense of accomplishment, I feel, was when I was happy with it. And I love that you like it, but it's I'm already on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's cool how that's transitioned rather than being like, check it out. Now so many more people are checking it out, but you sort of let it, let it be. But in terms of deadlines, they'll come we'll have to push them back sometimes because if it's not ready, it's not ready. And uh, it's a constant maneuver with management with us individually. And the key is that we get it right. You know, we're not going to rush something out that's not ready, but we've again, learned to set deadlines ahead of when they're actually really due and try to stick to that. So that when we're two weeks late, it's not the end of the world. That makes sense. It's never the end of the world. world. So, So far it's been going through a lot of stuff and, us not hitting a deadline shouldn't uh, contribute to that. Big time. No, and uh, I mean, just again, looking at um, you guys' website, you guys give a rundown of some of these uh, other feature artists that you have. Uh, Here Come the Mummies is a band that I have been wanting to see for so long. My uncle keeps telling me about them, and I have not got a chance to see them when they swung through Cleveland. But, I mean, they're on a track. Uh, the Main Squeeze is another band that I've just dove into, and uh, Benny Smiley Silverstein's on it. Yep. Hell, we've even talked about Chuck Dinosaur, John O'Halloran, a former uh, Stallion, uh, and also uh, just recently played at our Soiree of the Stallions charity concert up here in Cleveland, Ohio, about two weeks ago. Um, so, how, yeah, I guess how does that fit? Like, when do you guys decide, hey, we're going to have someone else on this track, and how do you decide who it's going to be? Well, we work with Steve on that. Um, we'll present him a track you know, send him a live version or one we've recorded at practice and will either agree or he'll, again, early on, he was sort of leading some of that 
but uh, as we go on, we sort of know which songs in the studio might need a little more, or not need, but be served by a little more of a uh, aspect, like keys or percussion. And for percussion, you know, Steve actually does the tambourine. He just does a couple shakes, and then we just spread it out through the whole thing. So he's our tambourine player. But we've also had a, a session percussion guy come in and just lay some ideas down. And then again, we listen through and we're like, we like this part, we don't like this part. Um, we know songs that would go well with horns being a funk band. Um, for King Kong and for Elefante, uh, we, the mummies gave us a lot of different options. And we honed in, again, doing the same thing. We'd listen to all these different takes. We'd listen to parts, be like, okay, maybe cut out this these two horn notes here and add these two in. So instead of writing out parts for them or having them write out the parts as you hear on the album, we'll write out ideas, play them together, and then we create the horn line out of that, sort of focusing it in with the four of our ears and uh, Steve's as well. And then for keys, uh, again, we know when there's a good soundscape opportunity for on a studio. And um, we've, in the past, had a, a friend who was a session keyboardist play, like on Burning Up My Time. Same thing, we, we actually tuned in to the uh, recording. There's a uh, listen app that we can use. So from home, we were listening in to it and then commenting to Steve, like, hey, can you try this out or try that out with him? Um, just kind of locking that in together. Then when we did Indigo with Zach from ALO, that was a really cool process because we got to talk with him and kind of hang out and then do the same thing. We were actually in studio for that one, listening back and just seeing what would work and what wouldn't. Um, and then on the new album, we have three different keyboardists. We had AC from Talk. Yeah, yeah. We, we saw had, them uh, last January when you toured with them. Yeah, they're phenomenal. AC sits in so nice. Yeah, he played with us at uh, Dome Fest last year, and we loved the song he played with us beneath the surface and we're like well let's have him on the album so that was one way to do it we just played with him live and we're like this is so cool we're doing that like hey can you play the piano parts here can you do this melody to add this whole new vibe and then um with smiley we just gave him a song and said hey give us some options and he his was pretty close to how it ended up we just sort of let him do his thing um and uh yeah, it just sort of, we, we get a feel for what would work and reach out to, you know, Jason Hahn from String Cheese for Move Like That, and it just adds this whole cool vibe, and uh, it's really a collaborative process, just like we like to do live. We invite guests all the time, opening band, um, friends that are in the area, uh, and just make it a collaborative experience, because it is, that's what music is, it's, it's collaboration. Um, it's the four of us collaborating, the five of us, the six of us and bringing new people into the fold adds a new energy. You got to throw it at the wall. That is how I always right. will approach my music and anyone I work with. Yeah, tell me, tell for, a, yeah. for the one we did with Chalk Dinosaur with John to come out that he added a lot of depth to that song. So. And an incredible talent. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm pumped for this. And then I guess one more thing we'll touch on the album is just I see you guys say that all four members are – or have inspired solos on the same track for the first time. Yeah, same what, album, different tracks. Or, yes, yeah, same, sorry, same record. Yeah. Right. Um, but nonetheless, do you have any hint or anything, uh, the one that you dove into? Yeah, um, it's Overtime, which I was talking about, which if you listen to some live takes, 
I have a, a section where I do a bass solo. On the album, it's shorter, so I had to really hone in and figure out what I want to do and how I want it to build up, you know, how I wanted the parts to go together, if it's more melodic or more rhythmic. Um, it's really such a small, focused area that I, you know, I haven't had many, you know, a bunch of different songs to try out different guitar solo techniques or different vibes. Uh, so it was really focused in, and it was a, it was an awesome experience to have i can see why it's frustrating having jeremy for jeremy to do all those solos and try different things out um, but i found the whole process uh, very rewarding that's awesome now i'm pumped for this thing again coming out in april everybody make sure you check that out once it drops um i got a quick question ben that sure. i just uh that I love and I want to know how you guys decide is basically your ideas of implementing covers into your sets and then going so far as having complete themes for your Halloween. Uh, I was able to go to the uh, deaf side of the moon down in Columbus and literally out of body experience, like couldn't believe some of the takes you've done mashing up those songs. Like where does that like, like, yeah, how do you guys decide, Hey, we're going to be covering this tonight or throw it at the wall. Well, first and foremost, we have always found it important to not just play a song the way it sounds. That's been done. You have cover bands that replicate it. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's great to see a song you love live, but we like to pigify each of the songs we do. So we've learned over the years what works and what doesn't. We'll try songs that we'll never play live. It's like, ah, this just doesn't have the energy or the vibe we're looking for, or the parts aren't working together. You know, if there's too many keyboard parts that we can't replicate, it's not going to hit. Um, but we, uh, early on, started doing these musical mashups, and it's a fun experience to try to see what will work together. Um, some of it ends up working out with the name comes together before the choice, like uh, Stop Making Cake was a fun one. I think we had the idea to put those two together before we... Uh, um, came out with them, you know, put the music together, but bands we love, bands we look up to, and, uh, you know, deep enough catalogs that we can try a bunch of different songs, and, you know, if we're going to do four from each band, eight, you know, ten or twelve songs total, six from each band, whatever it is, we try out a few more than that, and uh, do some early takes of it to see what would work. Um, but yeah, just trying them out, the themes really help us hone in on things. I remember... The uh, uh, halftime show ones where we did only songs that were used in Super Bowl halftime, and we did a stream at Brooklyn Bowl oh, in 2021 for, for New Year's Eve, or not New Year's Eve, for uh, for the Super Bowl, it was. And uh, we got to dig into like Purple Rain, and uh, that's where Blinding Lights, Bye 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 came from. Um, and yeah, just using that as an opportunity to explore different things. And uh, yeah. It's uh, just built up over time. All the practices we do, sound checks, we'll be like, oh, this is a... Remember we did, we do a version of Daddy Wasn't There, which we actually do closer to, to the way it is. Um, but that was a joke. We were somewhere west coast, and Greg and Gator, I think, just started playing it and singing it. Daddy, Daddy Wasn't There. We played it that night. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So we just kind of put that together and, and just 
swung it in. Like, oh, this could work in, in Poseidon. And now it's part of the repertoire. Uh, we did, it's awesome. Yeah. I believe Umbilical it, Moonrise, we were deeply uh, affected with the passing of Chuck from Lotus. And we knew we wanted to, to bring energy to, to the band and, and show our love for them. Um, so we worked on it that day at Soundcheck and played it. Woolies, which it's not Iowa, but you know, somewhere on our way back from West Coast, great venue, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe it was Gabe's. Doesn't matter. I know there's a tough arcade next door that we were hanging out at, uh, but being able to to kind of work with that and uh, you know put it together quickly or take a long time figuring out how our Halloween themes will go together. Who fighters? mashing some Who songs with Foo Fighters was incredible, seeing how both of those bands put music together, seeing how the bass worked, um, and then putting our own spin on it. It's a, you know, it's a labor of love, and it's what we enjoy and uh, what challenges us as well. Well, that's great. I mean, as an audience, it is something we look forward to definitely every time we see you all, and um, it has exposed a lot of people to songs because then they're like, oh, that's well, that's not a pigeon song. Like, let me go look. And then they go and dive into that artist. And it's obviously artists, like you said, you love. So full yeah, circle we started, with that. started out in bars in college. And before people know your songs, they're just kind of like, all right, whatever. And then you play a song everyone loves. And they sing along, brings them into the fold. So we yeah. used to play more, you know, uh, down with antelope, down with purple haze, was down with disease with purple haze or down with disease with run like an antelope. Uh, Fish. Yeah, Wall Street was the wall mixed with Shakedown Street, which is a fun one we used to do a lot. Um, We've gotten away from those types as as much uh, and doing more unique covers. Um, Medicated Goo was a fun one that we did a while back for the New Year's Steve. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's crazy, man. Yeah, we still want to bring people into it. And now we have songs that are almost covers in of themselves. Play melting lights and everyone sings along so that fulfills the role of a cover we have a few known songs we sprinkle in with uh lesser known songs that create the vibe you know the magical vibe of the set that bring that out-of-body experience and uh try to do you know around one cover each set to bring people into it and spice things up for us and create new transitions and keep the set list spicy every day so yeah, I mean, I dive into a little bit. I don't know if you're gonna ask that clip. It kind of felt like you were, but just how does a set list get created for a pigeon swing ping pong? Is there audibles at the halftime uh, when you go to set two? Is it looking at what you've played there last, or looking at what you just played last on the tour? Always what, goes into what we played last and what we played last on the tour. Um, if we're in the same area, you know, even if we're if we're in, I don't know close enough markets like let's say Cleveland and Columbus we're not going to try to play something we played even last time in Cleveland and Columbus cover wise um, original is a little different but still we'll try not to try to, to give people an opportunity to see different songs and give them a reason to come to different shows um, and yeah we'll put together a song list and then kind of mess around with uh, the order of things and where transitions could happen. Um, Jeremy takes the lead on, he's very passionate on working a song list, again, like an instrument or like it's its own form of art. Mm-hmm. And he'll work on it ahead of time, maybe on the van or the 
bus on the way to the venues, have a song list, he'll send out song ideas, he'll say, we like this, we don't like that. Um, he'll put together a set list idea, and then often it'll be before the show, um, or before sound check, we'll have ideas that we'll try them out and decide if we like this, if we don't like that. And then we always have a few audible options that if we have, we're short on time, or we need an extra song, we'll talk about that ahead of time. And again, as the years have gone on, we sort of more second nature to us, and we all kind of know what to do. We're coming up to an end of the song, we know we have a little more time left. We'll, uh, we know there's a few options, and maybe me and Jeremy will look and be like this song, or, um, you know, Greg will, because Greg's singing sometimes, so we have to decide. Uh, one time we actually both had different song ideas. We did Rock, Paper, Scissor on stage <laughs> to figure out what to play. Uh, that was fun. So just keeping it light, and, uh, you know, there's no wrong answer, but um, just kind of going with the flow. Do we need a more energetic song here? You know, all of us will say, oh, well, this song probably would work better in second set, or would this be a good opener, or why don't we leave this one for encore? Usually towards the end of second set, because we'll be jamming out stuff, the last song of the set ends up being the encore, and we leave the encore off. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of feeling it out, and um, kind of exploring and experimenting the way we do with our jams. No, that's awesome. I appreciate you diving into that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Cliff, what uh, what you got back there in records? Got any any favorite ones besides ours? Uh, let's see. There's a lot of, like, Chicago, Allman Brothers Band, Dave Matthews Band, um, Jamiroquois, Fish. Um, I, I listen to, like, all sorts of music. Miles Davis. Um there's really no genre that's off limits for me. So uh, Spruce told us how uh, he got into the jam music. How did you find your way into this this whole crazy world of ours? Um, so I I've been really into jam bands for a long time. Like probably around like 2013, 2014 is like when I started getting into it. Like Fish and Dave Matthews Band. I was just like really into those, and then. I kind of started discovering, you know, more jam bands from there, like, you know, Pigeons, Goose, Umphreys McGee, Mo. Um, yeah, and I just, like, keep finding more. Like, Widespread Panic was a band, like, Spruce and I were texting each other about yesterday. Um, and, yeah, it's so cool because it's all kind of, like, the same idea, but, like, these different bands use different mediums. You know, like you guys are like very funk oriented, like a band like Umphreys McGee's more like hard rock, like a band like what? Progressive kind of like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They don't totally have like those, that prog flavor to it. Um, yeah. Like Dave's like a little more folky. Fish is a little more jazzy, like Grateful Dead. They're like more bluesy. But it's yeah. all like the same spirit. Yep. Yeah, you're tapping into the same. But I mean, the specials really hard. But the idea of, of, you know, I guess to to bring the whole conversation to a nice um, rounded nature. Um, I personally look at music as uh, live music as we're sort of all worshiping together. We're sort of worshiping at the altar of music and connecting that way and 
there's many different paths just like with religion or spirituality or you know even just tapping into your own connection if you don't have any of that aspect to to the coming together with others there's different spokes of a wheel reaching in to the center and the center's you know how the wheel turns but all the different approaches sort of create the wheel itself and uh yeah the that's sort of my philosophy with music and we each have our own perspective and it's nice to see your record collection back there and uh you know i got mine upstairs i'm still working on gator's always picking up new records and um continually being inspired it's really really cool that's awesome i'm sure you guys know yeah no that's cool that you're into vinyl what what's like some of the stuff that you find yourself listening to a lot i haven't uh gotten my vinyl collection up enough but uh i mean there's some random bands i found like crumb which is like really cool and groovy mm -hmm. I'm trying to think. yeah i've i've heard of them yeah i got got my hands on uh circles by mac miller which is a oh, so foundational good. album to me um, but yeah i uh I just love the the feel of uh, putting a vinyl on. We just got our test pressing to make sure everything sounded good day and time, and I'm just like holding our music in our hands, and you can see the grooves. Like this is the music. Yeah. Yeah. And now, man, it's important, especially. I don't know. There's something about being able to take. Like we keep talking about taking a breath in this conversation. Is just being able to walk over, take a breath, process what you've heard on that side, and then be able to say this is purposely meant to be flipped like this and yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's a abbey fully road. immersive thing abbey road and you come on you finish with i want you and then here comes the sun you flip around yeah damn mm -hmm. yeah yeah that was an album we actually did recently here on vinyl stallions nice. shout out but um yeah ben no we appreciate you number one taking some time to talk with us yeah appreciate uh, you guys we your performance on stage as well as inspiring um how much you transcend the music you're playing outwards and in your outfits i fucking love your outfits ben like <laughs> all the hats keep them coming thanks yeah i've been uh put a lot of pressure on myself early on with that and i i like being able to bring that energy in but i'm part of my approach stylistically has always been evolving and doing what feels right right now you know the cap theater i wore this all gold thing pants and shirt that i i had acquired and uh when we had our uh, videographer a good friend dave peck come on the road in fall i found it important to to bring those energies in uh because of the youtube videos but i've gone through some you know feeling vibes in, in my life you know life happens and you know, mm -hmm. the way you experience it it's always changing so i've been able to release a little bit of the pressure on myself and just kind of go it's more natural or sometimes I mean, there's a tour where i just did flannels and and uh regular shirts and it every everything worked out and it, it was able to focus on the music more and it was nice but it's always fun to have that that expression as well so appreciate that you appreciate it absolutely man that's no, inspiring so again thank you uh, i will say we always do an encore here on vinyl stallions and this is the only consistent that we have throughout each interview we do with our guests and we ask a simple question it may not come off as simple but and if you have multiple um experiences that you want to share feel free but ben what is your most memorable concert experience and this could be attending playing 
this could be a wow moment or a what the fuck did I just see moment. And again, feel free to name any that come to your head or just one. Yeah, there's a um, a, a duo. My first outdoor and my first indoor fish concert. Uh, the moment at Burgettstown, Pittsburgh. Um, Star Lake, we were there last year when they went through. <laughs> yep, yeah, it was. Uh, this was many moons ago. I think it was like 2009, I believe. Okay. I think so. Because I remember my indoor fish show was the, day, the night before my birthday in 2009 at MSG. So it must have been the summer of 09. And uh, Trey hit this peak note. The whole band had lifted up. And it must have been, you know, I was on the lawn. It must have been the way everyone lifted up at the same time. And the heat of the bodies, wind just swept through the crowd and lifted us all up. And it was this moment of pure transcendence, out of body. Um, and that is almost exactly why I utilize, you know, I try to replicate that magical moment with the fan in my hair, uh, you know, turning it on and off with a different pedal so that at the peak moments I can lift everything up and bring that energy in. Uh, and then the first indoor fish show, I all of a sudden got it. It was vibe cultivation. That's what the band's doing. They're cultivating the vibe together. Mm-hmm. And that informs what we do and brought it all together. So those two yin-yang experiences were a big part of, of what uh, informed my live concert experience. Awesome. Appreciate you diving in. You're, yeah, I've Club has exposed me to fish as of recent last year, and I am yeah. full throttled into all of them albums. Yep. So. Yeah, they're hitting it harder than ever. It's pretty amazing. It really is. Yeah, they really are. Well, again, Ben, Thanks, thank Kev. you very much. Uh, appreciate you, and congrats as well on. Uh, I know you just had a newborn as well, um, somewhat recently. So, yeah. congrats on the family life as Thanks. well. And yeah, we look forward. I know you guys are picking right back up here. I think on Valentine's Day, heading down to Florida, yep. Georgia area. So leaving on Tuesday. That's oh wow! Wow, man. You guys are troopers. We appreciate everything you do for just the music community and just being able to chop it up with a couple yeah. of jabronis in Ohio. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate uh, appreciate it, and keep on doing what you're doing. It's it's vital to the the health of the scene. So thank you. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, we appreciate that. We'll we'll catch you out there sometime. You know, yeah. like I. Yeah, come... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, come say what's up at the next show you're at. Will do. Yeah, we absolutely will. Stay in touch, my friend. Yeah. Again, everybody, Ben Carey, bassist, Pinches Playing Ping Pong. New album coming out in April. Flock on, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but besides that, my name is Spruce. I'm Clap. Okay. And, this has been, and this has been another episode of Vinyl Stallion. <laughs> 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 <laughs>